You're listening to a 95BFM podcast. Are we in the midst of a well-being pandemic? That question may seem curious, even contradictory. However, researchers are encouraging us to look around. The concept is everywhere and spreading in the media, government institutions, transnational organisations in schools and workplaces, as well as even in the marketplaces. Uh, I spoke to Stephen Jackson, a professor of sport policy and politics at the University of Otago on this matter, and I started off by asking him about this wellness pandemic and if it is prevalent in society today. Yes, uh, well, a pandemic is, is really an epidemic, a disease uh, that's spread over multiple countries or continents, um, and you know, while well-being itself may not be a disease, uh, we sort of assert that it's, it is infectious in terms of its global spread, and it can be harmful if it's misused and exploited. And that's often a challenging thing to explain because who could possibly be against well-being? Um, and it's not the concept itself. It's it's more about how it's um, being exploited by others. Um, and so, if you know, you consider and you just look around your in the media, and now there's entire sections of newspapers dedicated to well-being, uh, government institutions, uh, the World Health Organization. Uh, if you look in schools, in your workplace, um, there's certainly uh, probably evidence of well-being programs or hints of it. And uh, the latest statistics show that the wellness economy is estimated to reach something like $7 trillion U.S. by the year 2025. What is well-being washing? Yes, uh, this is something we sort of derived in relation to similar concepts that people may have heard of, such as green washing or rainbow washing and sports washing. And each of the, those concepts sort of represent a strategic attempt to um, use discourse uh, to influence how an organization, you know, its branding and culture connotes something positive. Um, so. In a real formal sense, we would say it's the strategic attempt to use language and imagery, uh, policies and practices as part of an organization's culture uh, to connote something positive and virtuous. But in reality, it's designed to try and enhance our productivity in the workplace, uh, to reduce health costs, uh, minimize uh, reputational risk and uh, perhaps most dangerously, to promote conformity, control, and surveillance. And sometimes that's a little bit hard for people to see, but um, you know, it's often done in a very informal way in workplace well-being programs where you're encouraged, but if you don't participate, then um, you're, um, you're sort of stigmatized and you know, viewed as an outsider. And all this while, the whatever your workplace is, is sort of, you know, reaping the benefits of saying, see, we provide all these well-being programs for our employees, so they should be healthy and happy. Would you say that humans are obsessed with well-being to the point where it could become quite toxic? Uh, I think as humans, we, we all seek quality of life and happiness. Um, and you know that, that's some of the uh, original origins of well-being traced back to antiquity. Um, so that that is not unusual and in fact uh, that's what we should be seeking our happiness quality of life and well-being the problem comes when particular groups uh, that can be governments and it could be corporations um, but others um, have have the sort of power to define what quality of life and happiness are and how best to achieve them so 
you know, today we live in a very consumer-based society, so we're often told we can achieve health and happiness, you know, through consumption of commodities, you know, bigger houses, uh, newer cars, and a range of other things. Um, but if you think about it, we all know we're supposed to, you know, exercise and eat well for a healthy life. So it's quite simple in that sense. But that's more challenging when you're overworked uh, or don't have a job, you're underpaid and worried about job insecurity. Um, And again, it gets compounded when you have a job and you're doing your best and then your workplace may institute a a well-being program which you feel obligated to participate in, which takes up time at work, which means you then have to do your work at night and weekends. So it's this sort of... um, perpetual cycle of, of um, activities and, and policies that can impact negatively on our health and well-being. Well-being is flexible in the sense that it can be easily inserted into a diverse range of contexts, but it's also surrounded by this sort of halo. It has a halo effect to it, which automatically bestows it with this positive meaning. Could you tell me a bit about this? Yeah, so I think that's why um, it, it's so easy for well-being to, to be translated into well-being washing. Uh, and you described it very well there in terms of its flexibility, but this halo effect uh, and well-being is one of those words like um, freedom and democracy and liberty. No one would ever argue against those things. Um, they're, they're just, they just have this positive connotation. And so it's difficult to, to view them in a, any sort of negative way. And that allows the word then, the concept well-being, to, to be inserted or implemented in relation to um, exercise programs, into workplace well-being programs, in schools, uh, in the media, in, in uh, you know, living frameworks, as the New Zealand government has done, and a whole range of other places. Um, but that also means it can be exploited. Because it's positive, it can be exploited uh, in the same way that greenwashing can be exploited by uh, petrol companies like Ineos and others. Uh, so that, that's sort of what that means. Another perspective of well-being is, is individual responsibility. Individual responsibility has become a response to rising social inequality. It focuses on offering an alternative to GDP as a measure of overall national prosperity. Could you tell me a bit about this and touch on national prosperity and maybe how that relates to well-being? Yeah, so the uh, well-being itself in terms of its theoretical conceptualizations is obviously quite complex to explain, but we, we sort of look at it in, in simplistic terms. There's first the subjective well-being, uh, which is a sort of holistic measure of an individual's physical, uh, mental, and spiritual health. And that's the kind of thing that's, that the World Health uh, Five Index tries to capture. The second one, that, the one you're referring to, is generally referred to as an objective well-being. So, as you say, it's a response to uh, rising social inequality. And these were, you know, some of the, the world's, nation states got together recognizing that um, the, the current measures of, of things like GDP can measure something, elements of an economy, but it really doesn't say very much. It isn't an accurate indicator of the quality of life, um, the health standards, the education standards, etc., of citizens within the country. And so they were trying to find new ways of, uh, of measuring um, 
what what that might mean, uh, sort of well-being economies. And, and some governments, including New Zealand, have tried to build the word well-being into these new um, frameworks. The challenge, of course, is that trying to trying to have a any kind of measure of well-being is is very complex, and trying to address it in terms of inequality is difficult. But what we've noticed is that even when they're trying to do something positive uh, within the current paradigm we live in, increasingly it's about shifting the responsibility for health. It's it's it, it is a government responsibility, but it quickly gets shifted into individual responsibility. And again, if people just think about their own workplace, they're probably getting messages about, yep, we care about you and look after your colleagues, ask them about their well-being, but inevitably it's about you. And you'll have a department, a HR, Human Resources Department, that's carefully monitoring. Um, they'll offer assistance, but they'll be carefully monitoring your um, how many sick days you're having, uh, if you're having any trouble, and it will all be documented. Um, that could help you, but it could also be used against you in some cases. Um, and that's that's quite unfortunate. At the end of this article, you've written that we may need a vaccine of critical reflection. What does critical reflection mean to you? And where do we start with something which people might naturally think is, is obviously quite good for us, that being well-being? Yeah, I, I think uh, not to overcomplicate things, I, I think it's a matter of First, it starts with ourselves and our, our own family and fano. That is, decide for yourself what makes you happy. Um, but beyond that, it's, it's sort of um, becoming a, a little bit more critical, critically reflecting on some of the, the popular and some of the politically-based well-being programs and, and messages that are out there. Um, that includes, for example, in the, in the marketplace where companies are trying to sell us, uh, whether it's cosmetics or exercise programs or um, all kinds of things that are about our well-being, um, we should probably question them and go, is that really going to help and can I afford it? And at a much broader level, I think we have to start um, you know, evaluating government policies and corporate programs um, and, and checking to see, is what they're doing actually going to help? Is it making me feel better now? Um, does it have the potential to make me and my colleagues feel better or is it something that um, is actually making me unwell and perhaps even sick? Do you think that taking care of oneself, well-being, doesn't come as naturally to people anymore, at least in today's society, and it's looked at as more of a chore? I think it's becoming increasingly challenging. And again, in part, it's due to that sort of positive halo effect that surrounds the term well-being because we're all supposed to seek it, just like you know, health and well-being, where we need to take care of ourselves and our uh, family and family. Um, but that becomes much more complicated in a, uh, at times of COVID, for example, in times of natural disasters, which we're witnessing around the world, in times of you know, major challenges like you know, geopolitical, military conflicts, uh, climate change, but more locally about you know, the cost of inflation, um, job insecurity, and the way we're treated at work um, itself in many workplaces. Um, and again, the challenge is well-being being built into some of the policies and programs that we feel obligated. And uh, I think in some cases we're supposed to feel as if we're, we're, that we feel better, that our well-being is being enhanced. 
but in many cases that's not happening. And then there could be guilt associated with that, um, but there could also be this um, the, the fear that you just want to withdraw, but you know that you might be stigmatized by your uh, by the, the company or by your coworkers for not participating, um, not being a, a team player. And, you know, that's becoming more evident as there's more of these, you know, uh, well-being uh, champions and well-being um, leaders within organizations. In and of itself, there's nothing negative, but um, when you have an obligation or feel an obligation to participate in something that you don't want to, um, that is something that can make you unwell. That was Stephen Jackson, Professor of Sport Policy and Politics at the University of Otago, speaking about the chase of well-being. That was a 95BFM podcast. To hear more, head to 95BFM.com slash bcasts.